0: Talk Radio. Hello, I'm Stephen James, and welcome to the Story Blender, where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Today's guest, Karen Dion, is the co-founder of the online writer's community, Backspace. She organizes the annual Salt K Writers' Retreat in the Bahamas, And that's one that I keep bugging her to get me to come teach at. (laughs) She's also a past member of the Board of Directors for the International Thriller Writers, and she's the author of The Marsh King's Daughter, a dark psychological suspense novel set in Michigan's Upper Peninsula wilderness. Karen, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me, Stephen.
0: You know, I've been up to the... um, the Upper Peninsula Backpacking. Back in the day when I was in college, we went up there. It's a beautiful area. Kind of, most people don't realize sort of how remote it really is.
1: That's true, and you know, in my research for my novel, well, backing up, I should say I lived in the Upper Peninsula for 30 years, so I know firsthand what it's like. But in my research for the novel, I learned that while the Upper Peninsula of Michigan has 29% of the land area, it only has 3% of the population.
0: Uh-huh. So yeah.
1: I think that just says it as well as anything. There's a lot of empty space up there.
0: Yeah, I've loved my trips to Michigan. And Michigan people, I don't know if my listeners know this or not, but if you ever meet someone from Michigan, you ask them where they're from, they'll hold up their hand and they'll point to where on their hand is if their hand was Michigan where they're from. And right. no other states do that that I know of. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you yeah. don't have any other states sort of like forming their state with their hand. But um, So whenever I meet someone from Michigan, I always say, where are you from? And I point at my hand, they're like, you know the secret. You know what we do. <laughs>
1: yeah, they even call one part of Michigan the thumb area. You know, Oh, yeah, the thumb, it's
0: yeah. Like, like it's a, a mitten. mitten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations on the new novel, The Marsh King's Daughter. Um, I know you've written other works in the past, but this for you has been a little bit of a shift, much more of an intimate psychological suspense story. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the genesis of this new venture for you? What was it that led? I I know we spoke off the air for a couple minutes, and you said it took you several years to write this novel, to both research, uh, research it and write it. So what was the genesis? What led you in this new direction?
1: Well, thanks for asking. I think it's a really interesting thing, and I learned a lot from it, and hopefully your listeners will, too. My previous two novels were published in mass market paperback with Berkeley, and they are what I would consider science thrillers. Not science fiction, but thrillers set in the real world with a heavy dose of science. And for those novels, I started with the plot. You know, this would happen, that would happen, some big high concept premise for the book. And then I would create the characters as necessary. Hopefully interesting, engaging characters, but still the plot came first. For The Marsh King's Daughter, it was actually the reverse. I was looking for a backstory for a character in another novel where this character goes to great lengths to solve a mystery. She goes to France. She goes to China. Why? What is it that compels her to, you know, find the answer to the story question? And anything that I was coming up with, my agent, <laughs> he'd say, no, that's dumb. That's stupid. That's trite. You know, dig deep, you know. Oh, and nice. so, um,. I woke up in the middle of the night with the first sentences of what was to become the Marsh King's daughter in my head. And they were just there. They were fully formed. I wasn't dreaming about the character. I just, these sentences were in my head. And the sentences are, if I told you my mother's name, you'd recognize it right away. My mother was famous, though she never wanted to be. Hers wasn't the kind of fame anyone would wish for. J.C. Ducard, Amanda Berry, Elizabeth Smart fame, though my mother was none of them. And like I say, boom, it was just there. Yeah. So I thought, huh, that's interesting. So she's the daughter of a kidnapped girl and the guy who kidnapped her. And so I repeated the sentences enough that I would remember them in the morning because you know how that goes.
0: <laughs> and <in the> morning, <laughs> I don't know how many great morning. ideas of mine have been mumbled through the night and never discovered. I know,
1: anything. and then they're just gone. <laughs> yeah. So it still looks good in the morning. And so I wrote up a few paragraphs in her voice, and sent them to my agent and it was basically, Will this work as a backstory? You know, so she was saying who she was and how she grew up in the swamp in Michigan's upper Peninsula and so forth in complete isolation. And my agent wrote back saying it was cool and it was creepy and it was great writing and it would absolutely work, but in another book. Because it was right. you know too strong of a backstory to shoehorn into that other novel. So in the subsequent days she kept talking to me and I kept writing little snippets in her voice and I thought finally I've gotta I've gotta find a story for this character. So as I say, that that was like completely the opposite of my previous experience in writing where I started with the plot and then created the character. I ended up pulling my um books of childhood books of fairy tales off the shelves because I really enjoyed fairy tales as I was little. I kinda think every thriller writer did. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, the darker the better, these these were great things. And I started paging through them When I found the Marsh King's Daughter, I was super excited because in the fairy tale, the Marsh King's Daughter, the title character, is the offspring of a beautiful Egyptian princess and the evil Marsh King. Mm. And by day, she's beautiful like her mother, but has her father's wicked wild temper. And at night, it flips, and she takes on her mother's gentle nature in the form of a hideous frog. So, you know, same thing. It's a character whose equal parts you know, the offspring of an innocent and a monster, and it absolutely fit with this character who, I guess you could say, came to me in a dream.
0: Oh, uh, that's um, great. Yeah.
1: Thanks. Yeah. So the t- my takeaway from that, uh, you know, going forward with, with the reception that the book has gotten and what a joy it was to write and so forth, uh, I'm pretty much sold now on the idea of starting with character instead of plot.
0: Now, um a lot of times on on this show people talk about if their, you know, process is more organic or if it's outlining and some people have strong views about different approaches. I tend to write organically and people know that when they call in they're like, all right, he's gonna take me to task if I'm an outliner but I really don't care as long as the right story gets out there and it sounds for you it sounds like for you this process of exploring the character really led you to a story that, that's striking.
1: It did. And so when I I started looking at the plot, I used the Marsh King's Daughter, the fairy tale, which is one of Hans Christian Andersen's longer fairy tales, as like the bones or the backbone of the story. The the interesting thing, too, to me, though, um, and this was more organically than I had ever written, my agent kept pushing for a plot or, you know, an outline. Sure. And I said, no, no, I I, I didn't want to do that until, you know, as long as the character was talking to me because I wanted to get that down. And so then eventually her story became bigger than what I could hold in my head, and that's when I sat down and and worked up an outline. So um, the book is fairly complex, too, and that's, that's also part of it. It's told in two timelines. There there are the years when she was growing up in the marsh, complete isolation with only her mother and father, up to the age of 12 when she finds out the truth about how her father kidnapped her mother. And then there's um, a chunk that I call the middle years where she's adjusting to civilization, and those key incidents from that are told in flashback in the present-day story. In the present day, Um, My character, as the book opens, she's 27 years old. She's a young mother of two. She's still living in the Upper Peninsula, but her husband does not know her history. She's completely reinvented herself and put all of that behind her. And in the opening chapter, her father escapes from the maximum security prison in Marquette, which is like 30 miles from her home, and he's coming after her. So in the story set in the present, Helene is her name. She has to use the hunting and tracking skills that he taught her as a little girl to hunt him down before he can kidnap her and her two young daughters.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. So, so, so intriguing, you. yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So so the structure of the story, you know, with chapters set in the past, chapters set in the present, um, the chapters set in the past also start with an excerpt from the fairy tale, which, you know, goes progressively oh, yeah, through nice. the book until it's actually folded in. Um, that was way more than I could hold in my head. So I I needed an outline once it, once it developed to that point.
0: Now, one of the things that I like about what you said is that really the structure of the book was not imposed on it, but it grew from the story that you were writing. Like you didn't sit down and you, you outlined, you know, the scene so you wouldn't have to, you know, try and construct it all in your head. But this idea of this complex format, that's not something you set out to do at the start, is it?
1: No. um, and In fact, I wasn't even sure I was writing a thriller, to be honest. Um, When I started, I was just writing Helena, this character's story. And my very first outline was strictly chronological. You know, I was born all the way up to, you know, the ending. And my agent's the one who pointed out that, well, what, what happens with that is there's a climax when she leaves the marsh at the age of 12, and then there's, there's a lot of in-between years, and then there's another climax. Yeah. So by interweaving the story, the two climaxes you know, coincide at the end of the book, and logically, obviously, that's a lot better. So, um, uh, but, but going back to what I said, I just wanted to tell this character's story in the best way possible. So yeah, yeah the structure did grow from the story.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Karen, um, you mentioned that you had lived in the um, Upper Peninsula for a number of years, quite a few years now. It, so I'm guessing that the story, it, you did dip into your own experiences as you were shaping, shaping this novel. Um, what can you tell us about that process of maybe looking at your life and lifting things out, but not f- making the story... Um, forcing it to be close to the truth. You know, when I teach aspiring writers, very often, I'll say, this scene doesn't ring true. And they'll say, but that's the one that really happened, you know. (laughs) And and they'll Uh try to justify it by saying, no, no, that really happened. I said, it doesn't matter if it happened or not. It doesn't sound true. But it happened, so it doesn't matter. But uh, anyway, so for all of us who might be working on our own stories, um, what would you say, any insights or tools that we could use to kind of plumb those depths without getting distracted by trying to make it too autobiographical?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I I think what authors need to focus on is more the sensations of what they experience, not, not the facts of it. Um, not exactly conveying exactly what happened, but the things that they saw and they felt while these things were happening. Um, I can write very authentically about, you know, living in a tent in the woods because I did it. Yeah. And, but that doesn't mean that exactly, you know, everything that happened. So, so I think mood and detail are the things that you can draw from your own experience to make your book richer. But don't worry so much about the things that actually happened
0: yeah no that's that's good. I like that the sensations instead of the facts um, I think that's often the facts do get in the way of the true story that needs to be told, but the sensations are really what draw readers i think deeper into it so it's a great it's insight. true
1: like for instance, yeah. I can think of one example um my character is in a canoe, a metal canoe um, going down the Takwammana River, and the water is cold well if it's a two-seater canoe, so the other two people who are paddling for her are in the front and back, and she's sitting down on the bottom in the middle. And her bottom is cold. <laughs> I know this. I know this. <laughs> you know. So that's what I mean. with details like that that you can, you wouldn't necessarily find this in your research. So it, for me, it was a real joy to be able to tap into things that I knew to make the story come alive on the page.
0: Yeah, a, a lot of um, people give the advice: write what you know. And I understand where they're coming from because you want legitimacy to your stories. But I often tell people, write about what you're curious about or uh, because because what I know is often very limited. And I could never write from the perspective of a teenage girl or a serial killer or whatever it might be in my stories. So I think there is definitely some sort of a balance there in looking at your own experience, the details, mood, the sensations, and then... You know, stepping away so that that doesn't end up detracting from the story itself.
1: Right. I remember years ago, my first novel that never got published, the the drawer novel. <laughs> I had a character waking up in an Amerindian uh, village in South America, and obviously, I have never experienced that. Sure. But I have woken up in a campground in northern Michigan, <laughs> and so. Yeah. I- I know how it is, where you hear you know sounds from the other tent. You hear someone you know snapping twigs to build a fire, and you hear voices. And as the village starts to wake up, so I took that experience and, and imposed it on that situation in, in the other novel.
0: And everything you just said just now were sensory uh, details: hearing the sticks, hearing the people. Um, and I think that. I was talking with David Morell on the show um, a couple of months ago, and and he had said he tries to triangulate the senses. In other words, very often the one thing that we we can easily write is what we see. But he said look for ways to triangulate other senses, hearing and and, um, and maybe taste or smell and so on. And I can see that you naturally do that in your writing instead of just trying to you know write what you see. It was natural for you in that instance to write about what what you would have heard in that in that village
1: right And the smell of the campfire too and yeah. really that's the key to putting the reader in the story um the the sensory information
0: now when you mentor and you teach other authors at your writers conference or in your speaking engagements what, what are some of the keys that you like to really emphasize for them for drawing into or for, for shaping the stories that they're working on
1: You know, my advice is a little more big picture than that. My favorite piece of advice advice that I like to give to writers is write the right book. Because, um, as you mentioned, I I, uh, organized and ran writers' conferences for a lot of years. And we had a workshop called um, Two Minutes, Two Pages, where a group of ten authors would sit down with two literary agents and they would read their opening page. And it wasn't a pitch session. It was a workshop. The agents were supposed to react to the pages as if they were reading them in their offices as a submission, and say stop when they would have stopped. Sometimes that was in the first sentence. For oh no! Like, oh, yeah, some that's some true. Some of them are very anal, you know, right? But and then and then the writer would continue reading, and the agent would offer comments. So I have watched agents do this just dozens of times with with hundreds, a hundred, couple hundred authors. And so I have seen authors presenting the opening pages of their story over and over again. Now, obviously, at the conference, um, a lot of the writers aren't ready yet. You know, it's a, meant to be a learning experience. A few would sign with agents each of, at each event, but most wouldn't. And some of them, I always felt bad for the ones that didn't from the sense that some of them had been working on their novels for many years. Yeah. Or it was a good idea, but it wasn't enough to get the agents excited. And so that's where I kind of came down to this thought of writing the right book. And if I can tell a little story, I'll I'll just like to use a friend of mine, um, John Clinch, as an example. John Clinch writes literary fiction. And he came to my very first Backspace conference in 2005. And at that time, we did offer pitch sessions because we didn't know any better. So he sat down and The agent asked, what do you write? And John said, he writes literary fiction. And the agent said to him, why? In other words, it's such a hard sell. You know, why would you do this to yourself? Well, at that point, John said, yeah, I know, over a 10-year period, he had written five novels. And he had never been able to interest an agent in any of them. So he came away from that experience determined to find a story that would satisfy his literary sensibilities, but at the same time get agents excited. And so he um, had, had an idea kicking around for a while, and he started writing it that summer. Uh, the book is called Finn, and it's a very dark story of Huckleberry Finn's father. And um, he, from August, he posted a link at the Backspace forum to the first couple of chapters on his website. It was a Saturday morning. He said, um, check it out, tell your friends. I read it, and it was beautiful. John's book starts with the most beautiful description of a dead body you would ever read. The body is floating down the river, and a uh, crow flies down from above and plucks out an eye, and the little sunfish are nibbling it from the bottom, and it's just really cool.
0: And, and that's um, a beautiful description. <laughs> Some people would use yes. a different word, <laughs> but very vivid. It, it sounds it really very vivid, is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, it's, it's astounding. The, the book is just luscious. It's so beautiful. So uh, I sent it uh, the link to his chapters to my agent because John had said, tell your friends. And so my agent, he told me much later, he was actually at a writer's conference when he got my email and he was in the audience and he was checking his messages. So he read John's chapters on his phone. Loved oh, wow. them. Um, asked John to send him everything he had. John did. The next Monday, he offered representation to John on, like, 38,000 words. Um, John finished the novel the next January. This was August. The next January, it went on submission, sold at auction. Eight publishers wanted to buy it. Random House bought it for their lead title. Okay, so that was, like, astounding. But the thing is that, that my takeaway from that, John didn't suddenly become a better writer. Yeah. He wrote the right book. And I actually have an arc of John's book here on my desk. And the letter that his editor wrote to readers, he says, Dear Reader, you hold in your hands a major debut and that rarest of beasts, a real work of literature that has big commercial potential. So John absolutely nailed it. And, you know, his his writing career went on from there. So that's my advice to writers. Um, don't settle for a good story or even a really good story. You want to find that great story that's going to get agents and editors and eventually readers super excited about your work.
0: And how do we know that? How do we know when we have the right book? Um, I know that a lot of people listening might say, man, that's fantastic and, I, you know, congratulations. And how do I do it? <laughs> I want to write the right book. <laughs> Yeah,
1: well, I think part of it is not settling, um, trusting your gut. Like when, when you're writing a story, I've had this experience, and I'm sure you have too, Stephen, um, maybe, a, maybe a scene or even a whole story idea, you find yourself starting to get a little bored with it. Yeah. Um, I have the advantage that I am easily bored. So I figure if I'm getting bored with this topic, then the reader is certainly going to be bored with this book, and there's, there's something lacking. I won't say there's necessarily something wrong with it, but there's something lacking. And so, you know, if on the theme level, that's a little easier to deal with. You just take a step back and and rethink it. I think that writers, if they really want, you know, to reach a goal of, let's say, publication by a major publisher, they have to do the same thing with their story ideas and just be very honest and very critical and think, what is it about this story that sets it apart, that, that it's going to get somebody excited about this book. Not just does it interest me. Do I think it's a cool idea? You know, you have to you have to step outside of your love for the story and just be brutal.
0: I started uh, reading a book called "If You Want to Write." It was written, I think, in 1938 by Brenda Euland, and it's it's quite good. And she emphasizes over and over to write from your true self, not to write what people what you think people want mm. with not to write, I would say with critics and readers in mind so much as writing, pinpointing the the emotional resonance and and writing from from who you are. There's an honesty and a genuineness to the writing that only comes through when you step back from trying to impress people and t- start trying to really write that story. So, uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that's on target, on track? It seems like it is to me. I,
1: I do. That really resonates with me too. And and again, that goes to my own experience because I basically changed from writing science thrillers to writing psychological suspense. Yeah. And I realized with the psychological suspense, this is this is me. This is who I am. This is who I write. It's probably what I should have been writing all along. And, you know, I did have reasonable success with the other stories, but, but this is the one where, you know, it's, it's, I basically knocked it out of the park. It's, it's poised to be my breakout novel. And so that was, that's the, kind of the corollary to what I, I would like to convey to people, too. Um, maybe, maybe the genre, the, the subgenre, whatever, that a person is writing in isn't what they would be really, really good at and yeah. so you know be open and and as you were saying write from your true self from from who you really are
0: yeah people often ask me to define voice for them like when i'm teaching at conferences and so on i'll mention voice and say what does that even mean like what is writing voice and how do you find that and it's hard for me to really define except for me it's when you write authentically um, and your authentic kind of self or your authentic writing finally comes through. You stop trying to play games with language and stuff, and you, yes. you really emphasize, you know, here is this is this is the, I guess, the most honest or true way of expressing this that I know of. And that's when it finally finally starts to click. It's almost like when you find your voice, you find yourself, or maybe the other way around, when you find yourself, you find your. I don't really know exactly, but. It seems like authenticity is the one thing.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And I have thought of it in terms of personality. When an author lets their personality come out in their work, they start to find their own voice. Uh, They're not taking on that writerly tone, like this is how a book is supposed to be written. But they're just even having a little fun with it. And, And you know, if if a writer's core personality is is cynical or funny or or you know those things, when those things start to come out in our writing. Um, show a little attitude, my first scenes are very boring because they're just what happens. And it's not until I go back and layer in the character's personality that they really start to pop. Um,
0: For me, I usually can come up with dialogue first. For some reason, I hear a story. Maybe it's just because I'm a storyteller at heart and and I just kind of hear the people talking. So I write down that dialogue. I don't know where they are. I don't know even who's talking (laughs) often. But I'll write these you know, these exchanges that I think that's a meaningful or uh exchange or that's you know, that's really funny or whatever it might be, that draws me to it. Or it's chilling maybe and and um and then eventually I'll keep track of those and as I build the story I'll tap into that and I'll say, Oh, now I know where where they are, now I know who's who's actually speaking and you know, once in a while I'll just come up with a line like in the book that I just wrote, it's um this woman is drinking at a bar and a guy comes up to her and says, you know, Hey, what are you doing here? And she goes, I'm here to drink myself into a bad decision and I just thought, That's a great line, I gotta <laughs> use that somehow, right? So eventually yeah. she does drink herself into a very bad decision but but um but so those are the things that come to me first is is dialogue. I don't know why.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah. And um for myself I, I hear the story almost as music, not with musical notes but with beats and rhythms. And so many times before I've written the sentence I know what the rhythm of the sentence is going to be. And I just kind of hear it as da 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 you know, and then I don't the words for it. And, you know, it matters very much to me whether whether a sentence ends on a hard or a soft note and things like that. And, of course, you know, varying sentence length is, is so crucial to making it interesting. But, yeah, I, I hear the beats of the sentences before I know what they're going to be
0: that's that's really interesting i maybe i don't know enough about music or my mind would probably be off key if i tried to write but i love i love <laughs> oh, what you I say think... though about the beats uh that's nice yeah. it's good yeah well I we're think, all a little yeah, weird aren't
1: nice, we for, yeah. for what we do
0: well we have to to be able to do this thing so i know okay so big scope look at the write the right book write one that's from your true self from, that's authentic from you from your voice um and what boiling it down closer what 's the next step for us as aspiring writers um, or or what 's another piece of advice that you have to help us shape stories that really are meaningful and powerful
1: uh, well i've always felt too like it's really important to dig deep, as my agent said um, don't settle for the first thing that you think of, for instance, when I was um, I had this character, uh, I knew she was going to be the offspring of the kidnapped girl and the man who kidnapped her. And when I was writing up those first paragraphs the next morning for my agent, I almost gave the book an urban setting.
0: Um, I
1: was thinking about the girls in Cleveland, and it was so intriguing the way they were hidden for all those years in plain sight. You know, they lived in a city neighborhood. But, at the last moment, I thought, no, I'm going to change that up a little bit because that seemed just a little obvious or easy. Yeah. And so I decided to set it in uh, – they they live in a cabin on a river surrounded by marshland in the Tuquamina River Basin, which, by the way, that change was before I found the fairy tale, The Marsh King's Daughter. So uh, that was kind of amazing coincidence. Don't you love
0: how things but. like that work together? It's just the serendipity when – when you start to write something, it's like you open your eyes to certain things and then, you know, everyone will read it and be like, oh, she must have thought of that beforehand. You're like, no, 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 no. no. I know. <laughs> just aware and of so, it. Or, and you so this yeah. story
1: would be completely different if it had an urban setting. Well, for one thing, it wouldn't be called The Marsh King's Daughter <laughs> and yeah. it wouldn't be using the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale and it would just be a completely different book. And so I think that's that's the next point. Once Once a writer has an idea that excites them, you know, explore the different possibilities and see what you can change up to make it different or unique or the story, really the story that it should be. That
0: sounds a little, um, uh, whatever, <laughs>
1: spiritual, but you know, in, no,
0: no, <laughs> I think no. getting out of the way is vital. I, you know, it's interesting. People will say, well, what's the step to creating a great character? And I'll say, you know, For me, it's not asking yourself what this character would do, but it's asking yourself what would this character do if I stepped out of the way and then let them do it. So whether that's a killer, a girl, a man, FBI agent, detective, lovers, whatever it might be, once we step out of the way and allow that character then to start making the choices that define the direction of the story, man, that's what I think. The story really, really comes alive. Yeah,
1: I do too, and I've always been a big fan of uh, Donald Maass's book, you know, Writing the Breakout Novel. I I read it twenty years ago when I first started writing, and you know his his point was my main takeaway from that, and I've I've seen his workshops too, is the same thing that I just said. Don't accept the first thing that comes to mind. What might happen if this and that? Okay, that's one thing, but. What else can you come up with? What else, you know? Keep just keep digging deep. If uh, if it's not just popping into your head, you know, you can you can work your way towards that really special thing that makes your story up. It really it makes it coming from you, then, you know, because you've you've you cut through the fluff of what's maybe expected or ordinary and found what you really want to write.
0: Last weekend, I was uh, teaching at a conference in Atlanta. And uh, one of the um, activities that I gave to students was, I, I gave them um, sentences that I said, you could use this as an opening sentence, but I left a word out. So like one of them was, put that blank down. And they had to write, There's maybe 20 of them or something I gave them. Anyway, they had to write what they would maybe put there. And then afterwards I said, okay, now here are the words that you could not use. Like because they'd be cliche because they'd be overused and you know gun or knife and I said how many how many of you put gun or knife down and, you know half the hands go up you know and
1: one of them was <laughs> right.
0: um, one of them whose blank are these and I said you can't use panties and I said did anybody use panties like six people had written whose <laughs> panties are these uh-huh. you know and so it was it was the exact same idea that. You need to go deeper you know take this first idea that you have that you think is so brilliant step back for a minute and say now what where could this go like um this has probably been thought of before if i just thought of this one you know idea where can i go where can i go and take it deeper and i think it was afterwards they said man that was pretty eye-opening because i thought my idea was so original at first, and I'm like, yeah, you just have to brainstorm and dump, brainstorm and dump, and then you can start to find where the true essence of the story lies.
1: Yeah, and that's so true. Again, you know, I know a lot of agents because of organizing the conferences, and, and I know that agents, they see the same stories submitted to them over and over again. And, and I think that you've nailed it as to how, how and why that happens. Uh, authors just have gone for the obvious. Um, I'd like to tell you about a creative writing exercise that I did or learned many, many years ago. Great. Um, before I was was published, my writing partner at the time we called this Concept of the Day, and the point was to get our creative wheels turning. So what we did was each day we had to send each of us had to send the other a high concept story idea, and he was dashing them off like crazy, and I was really struggling. <laughs> good ideas. This was way back at the beginning. And so one day I sent him a story idea. Uh, A young couple is remodeling an old farmhouse and they find. And then I couldn't think of what they would find. All I could think of was the obvious, like a bag of money, a dead body. And so so I sent it to him and I said, well, here's half of a concept. (laughs) And he wrote back and he said, oh, come on. He said, I can think of a hundred things they they find. Like, money in a dead body, and and he went on, you know, with several others. And I thought, oh, okay, so the point of this exercise was don't self-censor, you know, because I thought, well, I thought of money in a dead body. So then he challenged me, and he said, I want you by the end of the day to come up with a list of 100 things that they found in that farmhouse. And I ended up with 60 by the end of the day. But, again, by the end of the day, I was... Coming up with you know Amelia Earhart's diary, Jimmy Hoffa's body, you know, I mean things that were <laughs> more specific and potentially far more interesting, and that just sort of unleashed my creativity. Uh, after that, I never had trouble thinking up a story idea ever again. <laughs> so um, I would I would recommend that writers that they if they try that just challenge themselves or even do it with a, with a writing partner. It's a great way to just, um, like I said, get rid of that self-censoring and then or self-editing, and then you find, you find the really exciting stories when you dig deep like that.
0: When I teach on creativity, sometimes I bring up um, when my kids were when I have three daughters, and when they were little, and we use up a paper towel roll, Of course, they'd grab it, use it as a telescope and run around the house, you, know, looking through the telescope. whatever it was. And so I was like, I admit, I did it too. (laughs) And so I would (laughs) take the favorite towel roll, you know. And what happens is suddenly you look at something and you notice it maybe for the first time. You've seen it a thousand times walking past it in your living room or in your office. But then when you put that tube up to your eye, you realize, okay, there's something about that that I never noticed before. There's something significant or there's a detail. And so I always encourage people to You know, narrow your focus, then widen your viewfinder. So narrow your focus. Take that paper towel and and hold it up to your eye and look at your story. And that's exactly what you did. I mean, you limited yourself so much that eventually then that allowed you the freedom to explore and expand and brainstorm all those ideas.
1: Yeah, yeah. When you have to come up with 100 different items, that, that really makes you think. And that's where the really fun stuff came from.
0: Now, when you write from experience, I mean, from, from my life, I've noticed that a lot of people who tap into their personal experiences find moments that are true in the ones that are discoveries and struggles. It isn't just maybe an experience that you had, but it's something that you struggled with or an insight, or um, some sort of new discovery or transformative truth that you learned. Did you find that at all true as you were looking back in your experiences, you know, growing up in the Upper Peninsula that related to the Marsh King's daughter?
1: Um, yeah, I think so, and, and I think that makes goes to a good point because the Marsh King's Daughter, while obviously setting is everything for this book, um, we have actually sold translation rights in 20 countries around the world, <laughs> which is pretty insane for an author. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. So my editor, I, I, we were talking about why so many countries, such disparate countries, you know, not just... France and Germany and England and Spain and Italy, but also Turkey and Korea and China and Russia, you know, and all these languages that the book is going to be translated into. And I asked him why he thought it was hitting such a chord, and he said it's because it's at heart a father-daughter story Hmm. um, that just happens to be set in the Upper Peninsula. And this is really true, and this is the, the core of the story that, to me, um, that's where I drew most heavily on my own experience because my character, for the first um, 12 years of her life in the marsh, she never sees another human being other than her mother and father. Uh, I give her a stack of National Geographics from the 1950s just so she okay, knows sure. how to read. And that's on the first page of the novel, so I'm not giving anything away. Right. <laughs> but she's happy. She loves her life. She's a little tomboy, and she adores her father. She's his little shadow. And that's how I was with my father. And um, I really loved my father as a little girl. And so that is what I've I've given my character. And then, you know, her emotional journey, um, she finds out the truth about her father, and she's also a teenager at the same time, so she hates her father, most especially because um, she didn't know that her information on the outside world was 50 years old. So, you know, an awful lot of resentment there. Hmm. And then she denies who she is. Uh, as a young married woman, and then by the end of the story, you know, obviously she has to come to terms with who she is. So the the character's emotional journey is really what's at the heart of the book, and, you know, she has a very complex relationship with her father. He, He takes her natural interest as a child, and he shapes her into a miniature version of himself, and, you know, she gives him her wholehearted love, and yet he doesn't deserve it. So, you know, I'm playing with those psychological aspects of the story. um, But tapping into my own, you know, let's just face my, my, I adored my father when I was little. And it was, it's really, I enjoyed um, creating characters that felt that way.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that sounds, that sounds great. So in in a sense, you know, people talk about character driven or plot driven stories and, you know, I always tell people, I don't really believe there's either. There's only tension-driven stories, that some are, you know, internal tension, some are external, some are relational tension. It sounds like yours, really, it's mainly this relational tension that develops, but also this tension inside of her as far as who am I, who am I really. And and um, so it's kind of a coming-of-age story in a sense, but coming-of-age later. And then, yeah. and then externally, of course, having to stop this person when he's coming after her later. So that's that's neat how you've sort of landed on all three of those aspects of tension and struggle.
1: Yeah, and and I didn't consciously sit down to do that. Again, you know, I was just telling this character's story. Um, I had some wonderful help from David Morrell. Um, let's see, the November before the book sold thought I was finished and um David very kindly read it and he said it's, it's all great except for the last forty pages. <laughs> he he said I, uh, the ending I needed an ending worthy of the character and it and it just wasn't nearly strong enough and, and he was right. But um he also saw my character, he said, as a female Rambo.
0: <laughs> Which, you know <laughs> Yeah. For really for readers gratified. who don't know, you know, David Morrell of course wrote First Blood and uh, in, in, is is the creator, the father of Rambo. He likes to t- he likes to tell people.
1: Right, so, right. Yeah. So that was that was a very high compliment. So there is definitely that thriller ish aspect to the story as well. It isn't all just TED games. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun.
0: Now. Y- Okay. We talked about character. That's good. And I'm wondering, do you, how do you place yourself in the position of a character when you're writing a story? In other words, do you have any activities or techniques that you use to really create that genuine and vivid experience for readers? Some people pretend they're the characters. Some people talk aloud. I don't know. And, um, some people do like, um, like actors might do and they, 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 act out parts of it. Is there anything that helps you to really step into the characters you're writing?
1: You know, I don't think I'm going to be particularly useful for this question, because for me, it's it's more or less just, uh, I think of it as method acting. I don't get up and move around, and I don't talk as the character, No, no device like that. But I just always think to myself, always in the back of my head is, I'm this character. I think this way. I feel this way. What would I do in this situation? What would I say in this situation? So, you know, there's that.
0: that I think that's very helpful. That's always going yeah. Through
1: my head as I'm writing. And, yeah, that's
0: one of the key know, so, questions I think is to ask: What would this character naturally do?
1: Yeah. And you know, if you're writing from multiple points of view in third person, you you just switch back and forth. You know, okay, now I'm this character and, and I'm in again in this situation and what am I saying and thinking and, and doing? What do I want?
0: Now, in the in the next couple of minutes as we kind of bring things to a close, I want you to think about maybe some uh I'll put it this way. Um Anything that you wish you'd been told when you were starting off as a writer? Anything maybe that now you know that you wish, man, I wish someone would have, you know, told me that?
1: You know, um, this, Marsh King's Daughter now, like I say, is poised to be my breakout book. It's coming out in hardcover and all over the world, and, and it's all very exciting and wonderful. Um I wish somebody had told me it was going to take 17 years <laughs> to reach this point. <laughs> because I, I think so many writers think this is going to come quickly. Um, honestly, myself, when I started writing, it's because I needed money. And I thought, well, okay, I'll write a book, and I'll sell it, and then I'll have money, you know. And it's just, it's it's not realistic. Um, I, I, I love writing. I also have to make money at it because you know it takes time away from your family and your life, and you you devote such a big chunk of time to writing a novel. And I, and again, that goes back to why I tell people write the right book. You're going to spend all that time on a novel. Make sure it's one that's going to going to get you where you want to be. So um, that didn't really quite answer the question, and then maybe it did. You know, no, I it did. Think that I had had a more realistic view of what I was in for when I started writing. Yeah, and
0: and that's really important because today there are so many people out there making promises of quick fame. If you just follow these simple steps, you can self-publish your book or you should publish five books a year because that's the new norm or whatever it is. And you're saying, look, it took me years to get to this place, years of learning, years of revising, years of editing – um, cutting your chops in one genre before moving on, you know, into another one. And I think that's huge advice for for all of us, really, is that, you know, excellence takes time, and it's not something yeah. that can be rushed.
1: Yeah, it's a long game. Writing is a long game.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Karen, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate your time and uh, your insights and just your frank your frankness you know saying look you've got to write the right book it can't be just something that you're trying to impress people with and and um so great and we wish you you know great success with the marsh king's daughter um what's the what's the official release date of the book
1: oh um june thirteenth.
0: so if you haven't pre-ordered the book you want to do that right away and where's the best chance or where's the best place for us to keep track of you or the book? Do you have a website, or is it best to connect through Twitter or Facebook?
1: Um, I keep all the key information on my website. So, for instance, you know, once my tour schedule is set, you know, I'll have notes there of of where I'm going to be and when, and there are links to pre-order the book there, too, on the website, and also to sign up for my mailing list. So that would be karendion.net. So K-A-R-E-N-D-I-O-N-N-E dot net.
0: And my website is net. So both of us are not commers, not dot commerce, <laughs> And so you can check that out. My book, Troubleshooting Your Novel, is now available. So if you are an aspiring author or even an accomplished author, uh, it's about 20 years of my life in teaching and lecturing on story and um, how to practically use that to help improve the books that you write. So check that out. It's everywhere online. Also, for more info about our guests and other broadcasts and podcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember,
1: the art of the story is
0: all in the blend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you
1: next time.